A few months ago, I uh, went and did a wedding, and it was at a memorial chapel located in a cemetery. I had never been. It was hard to get to, and when I arrived in the cemetery, my GPS uh, said to me out loud, you have reached your final destination. Uh, yeah, I know that, but I don't need a, a you know, navigational system to, to tell me that. Well, today we're going to talk about how we should not overthink it. The sermon is entitled, Don't Overthink It. And it's easy to protest the title of the sermon, the direction in which it could go, because life, it's kind of hard to navigate. It's hard to get where you want to go, and then uh, we're all going to die. So there's plenty of things that we can overthink about. When Susan and I were dating, and I flew to see her family, to meet her family for the first time, uh, I was living in Miami. She was where she's from in Los Angeles. And I flew out there to be there, meet her family. And there was one point when we were kind of on a date together. We were driving from one place to another, and we got stuck in traffic. Now, I bet all of you have been stuck in traffic. I don't know if all of you have been stuck in traffic in Los Angeles on a California freeway. I don't know if anybody's been stuck in traffic on a Los Angeles or California freeway where it's a double-decker freeway, and there's a gazillion tons of concrete and iron uh, above you. It's fine. You like that structure. It's solid if you're at the top of it, but not if you're stuck in a traffic snarl. And we had reached a complete stop. Now, I was glad that I was stuck with Susan. Uh, I'm sorry, on Susan, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck on you. I'm saying to her for many years now, stuck on you. Got a feeling down deep in my soul that I just, yeah, I'm, but I was stuck with her. So it was just kind of tough. And we were right there looking and I, and I started just kind of entertaining these scenarios. I think I was uh, perspiring a little bit and sensing my concern. She said, you know, Robert, uh, we have a lot of earthquakes in California and uh, they're predicting that one could happen at any time. And she kind of throttled the engine a little bit later to make it. I mean, we were just, it was, we were there for a long time. And I just started processing the scenarios thinking, man, if this th stuff fell, any sort of tremor, I mean, you know, we're, we're squashed, we're, we're goners. And, uh, you know, she played up on that a little bit as I um, continued to perspire. But um, you know what the Bible, what, what does the Bible say? Turnabout is fair play. Is that in there? And uh, so months later, she would come visit my family. So I drove up from South Florida. She flew in and we were hanging out and there was a storm that came and uh, we kind of tricked her. I got a couple of people, a nephew in particular, we tricked her and a storm was coming and we, we looked at our uh, screens and yelled and said, hey, there's a tornado coming. And so we, we uh, took cover, uh, hid under a mattress and played it up real good. There was no tornado coming, but I found out that she was much more afraid of tornadoes than I was uh, of earthquakes. Listen, uh, revenge is sweet but worry is not. You ever heard about the professional worrier, a man hired, um, he was talking to his friend, he said, uh, he goes, hey, you know, I've lost my job, credit cards, uh, debt is massive, and it's mounting, my job, my, my job, man, it just, it sunk me, so the car's being repossessed, my house is on, in foreclosure, but I'm not worried about a thing, and his friend said, you're not worried about anything, and uh, why, and he goes, well, I hired a professional worrier, he does my worrying for me, he goes, what do you, what do you owe a guy like that? He goes, $50,000. I got to pay $50,000 this year. And he says, where are you going to get that kind of money? And the guy goes, I don't know. That's his problem to worry about. Uh, it'd be cool if we could do that. And that's sort of the limits that I'll be preaching in today is you're like, you're going to tell me not to worry, but preacher, I got all these things to worry and there's nobody that's going to take care of this. So I understand the weight that, I, that this message can carry and the uphill battle uh, for some of you. There's a protest within me when we, we're going to look in a moment, it talks about not worrying because there's just so much to worry about. When we talk about, when we give a message called don't overthink it, part of that includes anxiety and depression 
some pretty heavy stuff, even thoughts of suicide and not wanting to be here. And so I want to say this. Uh, we need physicians, but we also need pastoral guidance. We might need therapy and doctors and possibly uh, medication. My personal opinion is don't be quick on the draw. I think we're too quick on the draw. That's my opinion. I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to offer pastoral guidance today to talk about uh, all that we need and something really in particular. So we're going to look at a prophet named Elijah. Y'all ready? And we're going to look, if you brought a Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. And some of you are thinking, man, I'm not going to be able to turn to 1 Kings 19 very quickly. So I'm just going to look at the screen. We'll do that. We'll save your pride a little bit. 1 Kings 19, if you want to turn there in the Bible you brought, or you want to look at the screen in just a minute. But before we get to 1 Kings 19, and we preach this sermon called Don't uh, overthink it. I want to invite you into understanding the background. Before chapter 19, there's chapter 18. And here's what happened in chapter 18. In chapter 18, there's this epic showdown. There's uh, this prophet named Elijah, and there's other prophets, and they're prophets of Baal, one of the most uh, popular false gods of the day. But they think Baal has power. They think Baal uh, delivers them what they need in their lives. And Elijah challenges them. And I I think this resonates a little more with the men folk in the room. But I love chapter 18. Go read it later. But what you see in this prophet is a trash-talking prophet. Isn't that great? We need more of that in the world today. Like I'll sign up. Trash-talking prophet. So here's what Elijah does. He says, let's build an altar and you're going to go first, but let's see whose God can light it up, whose God can show up and, and light this fire, okay? And there's bulls that, that will, will, will have a feast, and, and let's see whose God can do this. And so they, the, the prophets, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this, there were 450 of them. So one against 450, that, you, got, you got a lot working against you, those odds. One person against 450. So Elijah sets the terms of the deal. He says, all right, let's see who's God. So he goes, you go first. Because like when you, you make up the game, it's like, you know, you get to set the rules, I guess. So the 450 prophets of Baal, they, they dance and they sing and they cry out. And then Elijah, nothing happens. They pray to a God who doesn't, what, what's going to happen if you pray to a God who doesn't exist? Nothing. They pray to this God, Baal, and nothing happens. And Elijah does his prophet trash talking. He goes, where's your God? Is he sleeping? Is he visiting? Is he relieving himself? Isn't that great? So Elijah challenges them. Nothing happens. And then he prays to his God. And it, it, it gets lit up. And God shows up. And so Elijah sees uh, this major victory in an epic battle. Ever had a major victory in an epic battle? Some big battle you're fighting and God shows up and it's just massive and you know it was God and, and you're like, you know, we won. Ever had that type of mountaintop experience? So Elijah has that. And what's so interesting, that was chapter 18, but we come to chapter 19 and what do we see? We see a man who was at a very low place. We see a man who was afraid. And what do you do when you're afraid? He ran. He ran and he hid, and he's at a low. So let's stop here, and I just want to flatly say that it can be true of you that when you had a major victory, when you've experienced a real high, when you have seen God work, right after that could be your most vulnerable moment. Right after that could be when you're most vulnerable emotionally and spiritually. Right after that is when you can uh, suffer from some of the worst bouts of overthinking and worry and depression that you've ever experienced right after that. It's part of being human. And I just want to give you, like I said, we need physicians. When you go to the doctor, they'll prescribe something and they'll give you a diagnosis and they're great, aren't they? Well, as a pastor, I want to, I want to, I want to give you, I want to help you from God's word. I want to help you interpret your life a little bit because a lot of us struggle to interpret life. And here's the thing. It's part of it. It's part of living in this world 
And so I want us to look now at this passage and right uh, at the beginning of 19, we won't look at it, but just let me reference it. Uh, Queen Jezebel, a woman who was, had great power and she was nasty. And Queen Jezebel is like, she heard about what happened and she was angry and she says, I want to kill Elijah. I, I, want him, I want him to be a goner in the, like the next 24 hours. So Elijah is afraid and here's his response. It's so wonderful. Then Elijah became, I mean, the story's wonderful. It's kind of depressing. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. What do you do when you're afraid? You, whatever you do, it's probably not stick around. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. Circle that phrase, he left his servant there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly, an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. So Elijah had demonstrated incredible courage. Incredible courage and incredible faith. Again, I want to flatly say to you, there can be times in your life where you demonstrate faith and courage. You've, you even surprised yourself and surprised people in your family. Your people, you surprised, like, you had faith and courage. And then right after that, you're wondering, where did that faith and courage go? And here's what we do. Hear me. Here's what we do. I want to help you interpret this. We think that there's something terribly wrong with us. And we add shame to that, that lack of faith and that lack of courage, that fear that you have when you run and hide. We put an added layer of shame and we do that to ourselves by overthinking it. And we think something is wrong with me. But here's what I want to tell you that it means. When you experience anxiety, when you experience depression and despair, when you're overthinking, here's what it can mean. It means this, that you're a human being with raw emotions in a busted up world. It me, that's what it means. Let me help you interpret that. It means that you're a human being with raw emotions in a busted up world. When I first read the Bible, or I'm sorry, when I first thought about the Bible and, and I was a kid and, and um, I, I thought, you know, if your name's in the Bible, then you got it going on. And then I read the Bible and I realized, man, there's a lot of people just like you and I. And that's what we see in this prophet. That's what we see in Elijah, just like us. He's living as a human being with raw emotion in a busted up world. And he has faith and courage and he turns around and he wonders where he got that faith and courage. Can I get an amen today? Is that part of your human experience? Just helping you interpret life. This is the way that it is. And it's a, a small thing it seems, but terribly sad when it says he left his servant there because he's making a decision to withdraw. This is how I put it. This was ruminating in my thoughts all week. When I'm overthinking it all, I withdraw. It's what you do. It's what we do. When I'm overthinking it all, I withdraw. Can I tell you, it's the, that's the last time you need to, that's the last thing you need to do is withdraw. But I, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm, low, I'm, I'm isolated. I'm feeling this way, so I'm going to even go further. You, you step away. But what you need to do is step back in. When I am overthinking it all, I withdraw. I've heard it a lot lately. I heard it last night at, the, at a wedding at the Reed House talking to some friends, and um, because they don't come to this church, uh, I'm not saying it's not true in our church, but these are people who go, uh, that know me from another past life. And they're talking to me, and the music's playing loud. They're like, man, you know, we, we, I got to tell you, Robert, we, just, we don't go much anymore. We don't, I mean, we watch from home. We watch, it's just easier to watch. We don't, we don't, we don't go to church. I mean, I, you know, I shouldn't tell you this, but man, we don't, I mean, we barely go anymore. That's one way to withdraw. 
There's a lot of other ways to withdraw. Everybody probably has their own withdrawal story. But we step away when we should be stepping in. The very time that we should step in, we're stepping away and we're isolating ourselves. He purposely left his servant there. He said, I'm going to be alone. Now, I don't have time to preach this, but there's a difference between solitude and isolation. And Van mentioned a, pre, a passage, the part, first part of the passage last week, put it on the screen. We read it out loud, Psalm 46, uh, 10, be still and know that I'm God. There's a purposeful sense of solitude. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But man, there's a difference between solitude and isolation. Isolation is when you're withdrawing and you're afraid and you're experiencing uh, overthinking. And it's part of the human experience. If we were in a small group, we could have time to tell some stories of what you do when you're afraid and your own testimony of withdrawing. The scripture gives us two times where Jesus was experiencing incredible isolation. The first time is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4 when the Spirit led him into the wilderness and he went toe-to-toe with the devil for 40 days. He was alone in battle. Second time we're told is Matthew 26, later, later, he's in the garden. And it's a different kind of loneliness because in the wilderness he was led by the Spirit and he went toe-to-toe with the devil. He was offered and he was tempted. He was offered the world and tempted. And then in Matthew 26, his disciples were with him, but he was alone. Well, how can you be alone when people are with you? I don't know, you tell me. How, how can you be alone when people are w- with you? You got a story? You ever, you ever been in a group, been in a crowd, been in a family, been with a spouse? You're, they're with you, but you feel all alone. I, I know it. Psychologists call it crowded loneliness. I know it. I, I, I'm telling you, I know the feeling, and some of you do, and leaders, I think, particularly know it. And Jesus is with his disciples. He says, hey, pray. Pray with me. Pray. I need you. What do they do? They, they fall asleep. You know the famous verse, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. That was the disciples. They wanted, their intention was to be with Jesus. Their intention was to beseech the Father on behalf of his great plan of revolutionary love for the world, for forgiveness and peace and shalom. But they fell asleep. And Jesus experiences this isolation. The prophet, after a major victory of epic proportions, becomes afraid because of the queen and everything that's going on. And he overthought a scenario. And it happens to us when we overthink a scenario. And so he experiences this loneliness. So notice the beauty of the story. I'm going to put up the next couple of verses because it all interwoves together. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and laid down again. Now, we're modern, sophisticated people. That's not what you're going to do for lunch today. You're going to a buffet somewhere, or you got a roast cooking when you get home. A simple meal, but it meant everything to him. It strengthened his bones and his spirit. It gave him sustenance. And we see a a beautiful testimony of how we are human. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. One writer said this, that the the three most important phrases for, for humans are, I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. It's really important for us to break bread and be with one another. Uh, Sometimes it's the healing balm that God desires for you. If you take uh, your Bible and you get a yellow marker and you go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you circle, or I'm sorry, you highlight every time it says they broke bread and ate together, they had fellowship, like bring a second marker. 
bring a second highlighter because it's all throughout scripture. Y'all, anybody remember, this is kind of vague, I don't have the video clip, but you remember the Boston College basketball player, they just got eliminated from the March Madness big dance and uh, early and they interviewed him and he's, he was uh, emotional and he's trying to keep his emotions in check as men do. And they said, what are you gonna miss the most? Because it's over, his, his college career is over, not likely to play in the NBA. What are you gonna miss the most? He got choked up. It's one of those clips where, anybody remember this, where he, he hung his head for a while, his shoulders were slumped and it took him a long time to gather himself. The only words he could get out were eating dinner with the guys. And uh, we kind of laugh at that, sort of a, almost a kind of a mockery thing. But I, I, I looked at that uh, this week uh, somewhat fortuitously, and I saw it, and I was like, man, that's a bigger thing. Like having dinner with the guys, breaking bread with somebody, right? being around the table with the same group of people over and over again is one of the great things in life. And listen, if you're going to be a person who moves from worry to worship, if you're going to be a person that doesn't overthink things, who's, who doesn't get their life sucked away by lack of joy into a life of anxiety, then you're going to need to break bread with people. You're going to need to say, hey, sometimes it's time, it's time to have a nap. It's time to have a meal. It's time to be with my people. And I know I'm stating the obvious here, but those three things are really amazing. So some of you know this. I shared it recently with my small group, mentioned it in a sermon maybe six months ago. But being vulnerable a little bit, just letting you in on my world, it's a bit embarrassing, but I'll tell you. Um, I've noticed in my life there are two times pretty much every week, if I'm in my regular routine, there's two times where I hit a low. And one low is very appreciable, and that's every Sunday afternoon. You see, when you're preaching a sermon, to preach a sermon, you've got to write a sermon. But to write a sermon, a lot of work goes into it. And so all week, I just feel like I'm putting coals on a fire, putting, putting coals on, putting coals on, putting coals on a fire, putting coals on a fire. No matter where I'm at, I'm thinking about the sermon. I could be with you on a Saturday. You're watching the game, laughing or cheering or crying. I'm like thinking about the sermon. I'm just putting coals on the fire. And then I preach that sermon. Then I talk to a lot of people. Then I go home and I just, I, I just second guess myself. And I wonder, God, did you ignite this fire within anybody? And I just sit there and I second guess myself and I feel very lonely. And I have to have a nap. And it's just a really, really low time. And I've noticed this more recently. These are my biorhythms. And I've noticed that about Wednesday, late, middle of the week, I, I hit another low. And it's not because of Wednesday night programming, because I'm really praying and cheering for y'all who are part of that. But for me, it's just a several days of interaction, whereas a pastor, and it's an honor to be a pastor, but to hear your uh, prayer requests, to hear your problems, to hear your stories, and to absorb that, it's just, uh, I'm just wired in a way. I mean, I've said this before, I'm just a sensitive leader. And so I, I want you to be an overcomer. I want you to see God show up in your life. And so the weight of your stories weighs on me. And I hit a low. And so I don't want this to make this about me, and I definitely don't want your sympathy. So don't, nobody encouraged me for at least a couple of years. <laughs> But uh, it's not about me, but I want to ask you. I want you to contextualize this for you. I really do. I want you to think about you and when do you get low? When, when are the times when emotionally and relationally and spiritually you're depleted? And if you look at your biorhythms, and that's what we have in 1 Kings 19. Remember I told you, you we need physicians and we need pastoral guidance. And, and you need both. And so let me just tell you, touch is important. And touch is a funny subject. How many of you are huggers? You're warm and touchy people. Let me see your hand. Okay, let's meet afterwards. Okay, let's, let's hang out because I love you. How many of you are kind of not so much? It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I'm a toucher. I love to hug. I love to embrace. Uh, I, would do, I would bring back the New Testament's greet each other with a holy kiss, but there wouldn't be enough of y'all. But uh, it's important for leadership to, to, to touch appropriately. And I said this at the first service. I don't like to say this. I wouldn't have said it 
15 years ago. But um, touch, like any gift that God gives, is distorted by the enemy. And some of us know that. And some of us have experienced personally where we've been violated. And I'm, I am so sorry, and I hate that. And leaders have to be very careful. Um, but touch is really important. It really, really is. Real quickly, because you're an integrated system and we get that. You're an integrated system. I hope I'm making our doctors proud today, but this is true. Uh, this is what you need. These are some chemicals. These are some things happening uh, around you. And I know we got some educated people, so I, I try to get all this right. Dopamine, do something good, accomplish something. There's serotonin, healthy food will stimulate that. Oxytocin, a human connection. Uh, this is so important to touch each other. This is why we need dogs. And this is why we have golden retrievers. And I did this at the 9.30. I hope y'all don't leave me hanging, but God is working in Fondra Church. And so many people are getting golden retrievers. Just raise your hand if you have a golden. You got gold, we got some golden retrievers. Yeah, you, you wouldn't believe how many golden. I mean, God, is, it's like a cult here, and I'm, I'm, I'm down with it. Uh, I don't know if the, the dog is here. All of our college students, I think, are gone. But one of our college gals uh, brings a support dog with her, and it's a golden retriever. And I'm like, as long as the dog is perfect, that, that you know, we don't have a rule against it. But uh, she's brought the dog in a couple of weeks ago when we were having communion. I'm sitting here, standing here with Susan. The song's played. And the, 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 the woman comes through, the college comes through with her dog right here. And I was trying not to look. And Susan nudges me. She's like, look. And uh, the golden, like, is, you know, uh, doesn't know that Jesus died for her sins. But he's, like, looking up and, like, thinking, maybe I get a treat or something. And uh, Susan shouldn't have pointed it out. But I was just, I just melted. I'm like, no, we got a golden retriever in church. So it's just a good thing. So God, God's moving. He really is. Um, but we get dogs because of touch. People are like, I don't want the, the breed sheds. But the breeds that shed are the softest and better for your touch. And I should have done more medical research on that. But anyway, we love human touch. And the angel, the scripture tells us in the story twice that he was touched by an angel. And there's something that happens that's really important. That's why COVID and all of its restrictions were really bad for us. Now, I'll have a little edge to this, and you'll uh, be gracious. But uh, you know how we ran the deaths and the number of cases, and it just rolled across the screen at CNN? Why don't they do that for mental health? Why don't they do that for depression? Why don't they do that for... So, like, roll those numbers. Roll, you know, you did that for COVID. Do that for, do that for this. How many people are isolated? How many people have withdrawn? How many people are struggling with their mental and emotional health? Put those at the bottom of CNN, because that's killing a lot of people. That's isolating. Some of them are immediate deaths that are sudden and just heart-rendering. And some of it's just a slow death. Put those numbers on CNN because it's important. I'm done. Um, but I want to say this. You're, uh, let me go back. You are, before that, you and I are integrated systems. And you, you sort of know this, but we really need to dial in today when we're thinking about not overthinking things. If you're not doing well emotionally that affects you physically doesn't it and if you're not doing well physically that can affect you emotionally or spiritually or mentally are you with me and so when one area and you're you're all that you're you're all of that that god has created you you're a vast and intricate and woven together it's almost like you're i don't know fearfully and wonderfully made and, and god has created you in this way and when one is offline or one is stuff not doing well it affects all the others right and so a nap, I love you, I forgive you, dinner's ready. That's really, really important. And um, naps and rest and nutrition. And when it comes to exercise, I wish he was in the first, uh, the second service, but, uh, you know, exercise is really important. And uh, I picked on Chris Mixon, but uh, Mark Batterson, the pastor, says when it comes to exercise, people are often in two camps. We have uh, neglectors and we have obsessors. And you know who you are. 
if you're neglecting exercise, stop, get busy, because this is, uh, this is really important. Those endorphins needed to elevate, it affects you, and it affects you spiritually. And if you're overthinking something, exercise will be part, exercise can really help you. Some of you are obsessors. Chris Mixon is not here, his, his, his great, his in-laws were here, so I got to make fun of him in front of his in-laws, which is really awesome. But uh, Chris Mixon is, is our student pastor. He just ran 100 miles a couple weeks ago, and you know what? He loves that. And he came in the office Monday, good thing I wasn't there, and he showed his feet to the rest of the staff, his gnarly toenails and everything. He had just run 100 miles. He's an exercise obsessor. So don't be like Chris, but uh, don't be like a lot of people in Mississippi either. And so we're integrated, and we need to realize that. So part of the solution for you overthinking is to release these chemicals. Um, all right. Before I put up this passage that a lot of you know, it's been used and misused and mistaught and misapplied and well-meaning Christian people have used this to you and it's brought added shame. They didn't mean to bring you shame, but you're overthinking, you're worried, you're depressed, and they brought this verse to you and it added a layer of shame. I'm very aware of that, but I want to read it for you today. I want us to read it and real quick. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone on social media also. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I know, I know, I know that when I say don't worry about anything, there's protest. I protest that. There, there, by the way, there are different kinds of anxiety, just like there are different kinds of anger. Wouldn't you agree? Like there's anger that's just a mild little irritation. And then there's anger that's a raging provocation. Those are very different. If, if you go home today and you have a little mild provocation, that's one thing. But if you have a raging, you know, that, that there's, there are different kinds of anger, but there's also different kinds of anxiety. But here's the thing. I said it at the first service, I want to say it to you. There's, he's talking about all of it. Like, all of it. Like, you don't have to overthink things. You don't have to siphon the joy out of your life, which is very, very short. You don't, you don't have to. God has a better plan for you. So we need to think about anxiety. And I know the protest. Just this week alone, I have a mental record of people that I've talked to, that I've interacted with. Hey, pray for my grandson. He just checked into rehab because of his addiction. Pray for my wife. She has stage three cancer. Pray for me and my husband. Uh, he's been distant lately, and I'm afraid he's having an affair. Uh, pray for this chemistry test. Pray for this wedding that I'm planning. And just, it's just in a few weeks. I think it's going to be a disaster. We have different levels of anxiety, but we've all got anxiety. And this sermon is not to say, hey, you don't have something to worry about. I acknowledge you probably do have a lot of things to worry about. But don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. Prayer and supplication. Here's what I'm learning. It's been a part of my practice for years. It's become more poignant and meaningful lately. When I pray, it's a secret prayer closet. And I go in and when I'm praying, I tell God what I need and I thank him for all that he's done. And I want to leave that with you today. Tell God, pray. Pray. Because if you just say, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. We all know what you're doing. You don't even need to say it, but you're worrying. If you think, don't worry, don't worry. But if you pray, you're going to God with something. And just real simple, tell God what you need and thank him for what he's done. And maybe I'm 
a little move right now because I'm just thinking of what he's done. And I'm telling you, when, I've gone, when I go into my private prayer closet and I'm doing those two, when I start thanking God for what he's done, the stuff I told him that I needed just begins to shrink a lot. Like, remember, honey, I shrunk the kids? Like, just real small. And some of it just kind of, it just goes away. Like, that needs I was praying for, because I'm thanking him. And can I just say, what do I have? You know what I have? Can I tell you today? Pointing to heaven. You know what I have? Everything I need. I've got everything that I need. Tell God what you need. And thank him for all that he's done. A couple things about worry that's important to mention. And we don't have much longer. Um, Some people are more prone to worry than others. I can tell by looking at you and preaching this sermon, looking at your face, who some of our warriors are. Some people are more prone to worry than others. I think of a time when Jesus, because you know, you got Simon Peter and you got doubting Thomas. And there was a time when Jesus said, hey, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter goes, oh no, Lord, nothing bad's gonna happen. And And Thomas is like, oh yeah, I'll go with you. Come on guys, we're all gonna die, we're all doomed. And uh, you're, you could be Simon Peter, or you could be doubting Thomas. Simon Peter was probably a sanguine before they had the personality test. And sanguine people are just, they don't worry about a lot. Sanguine people don't get ulcers. They just give other people ulcers by the details that they don't follow through with. Can I just say that? So I don't know if you're more prone to worry or, you, or you're not, but some people are. And you just, it's just worth saying. And, you know, these people marry each other. That's what happens, um, which makes it real easy at home. There's a difference. There's a difference between uh, concern and worry. Let me tell you, concern is when you focus on a probable outcome and you take action. But anxiety is when you focus on improbable outcomes and you, uh, you don't do anything. Concern is when you focus on probable outcomes Uh, I'm going to the airport, I'm going to miss a flight, I need to take a different route, I need to call Southwest Airlines, whatever I need, you know, that's that's concern. And some of you are apathetic, and you need to have more concern. But anxiety is when it weighs on you, it gets the best of you, it chokes out life from you. And you're not worshiping, you're not praying, you're not worrying, I mean, you're you're not worshiping, you're you're worrying, and it's it's gotten the best of you, but it's it's all these worst-case scenarios. Anybody devise catastrophic worst-case scenarios? Austin Brown is a big Ole Miss fan. After the first service, he was writing notes over here. He's like, man, Egg Bowl's coming up. He was just thinking of ways in his mind of how uh, Ole Miss would lose the game. And uh, it'll be the worst thing in the world for you Ole Miss fans. I don't think there's any chance, but if it happens, I'm here, okay? I'll be here. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but we do that. Austin Brown, like, you know, oh, the cat, oh, he's not alone. We all think, oh, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? And it's just so easy uh, to do that. Worry, here's the definition. A little bit of flair to it. Worry is an internal false prophet of doom that prophesies a hopeless future. Worry is an internal prophet of doom that prophesies a hopeless future. Nobody's saying you don't have real and pressing problems. No one is saying that there are, there's not tons to worry about. I mean, the man, look, the world is so divided. The church is being challenged today. Uh, people have unprocessed personal pain and we're lashing out at each other. Like, that's the world. There's plenty, plenty to worry about. And that's the world. That the, a lot of the world, you know, you know this, a lot of the world's at war right now. And, and several other nations are on the brink of war, and they're interested in bringing other people into their war. So there's a lot of doom. 
but you have an internal false prophet of doom that prophesies a hopeless future for you. So notice that it's so important. That's why this passage has been, uh, you know, misapplied and mistaught. So let's talk about it. He says, I want you to, not to worry, I want you to pray. There's be gentle with all and rejoice always. Again, there's all the, you know, all those good things. But he says, uh, you know, don't worry, but pray. Don't worry about anything, but pray. Pray about everything. Your supplication, thanksgiving. But pray. And here's what he doesn't promise. He doesn't promise. He makes a promise, and it's a good promise. But he, what he doesn't promise is, I won't resolve the issue. You know, the promise isn't, I'm going to resolve the issue or improve your circumstance. It's not going to be, God's not up there going, hey, you know, when I close a door, I'm going to open a window. He didn't, he's not saying that to you. But God is saying what? You bring it to me, and I'll give you peace. And that's the promise. And let me tell you, that's good enough. And if you had that peace, hey, let me ask you, anybody ever experienced the peace? I know it, and I, I can worry with the best of them. But have anybody ever, you ever known the peace that you can't explain, but you know that you experience? Whew. That's the stuff. And that's the promise. He's not going to necessarily resolve your issues or improve your circumstances or open a window after he closed the door, but he's going to give you peace. That Greek word for peace is the same word used in the, in the Greek world at the time of soldiers guarding the tomb, soldiers guarding something really important. Here's what, you know what Paul's saying? What an act of love. He's saying that it, your mind and your heart is so important, I want it to be guarded by God's peace. Whew. You're focusing on your income, your house, your team, your this, your that. You, know, you are your heart and your mind and your soul, and it's so important, it needs to be guarded by God's peace. And that's what can come. That's the promise that he gives us. I heard a writer when I was studying it this week, he said that we want things to be transactional with God, but it's, he's relational. We want it transactional. Pray a prayer. And here's, I, I want to be done with this kind of prayer. I want to invite you to join me in being done with this kind of view of the world. I'm going to pray for something I need. And if God doesn't immediately or somewhat soon give it to me, I'm going to assume that he doesn't exist or he's not good to me. And that's kind of, that characterizes too many people's prayer life. And I want to say, man, that, don't make it transactional with God. It's relational, and it's knowing him and knowing that he's got you and knowing that he'll give you everything that you really need. He goes on to say in this passage that's terribly, awfully familiar and misunderstood, he goes on to say that uh, we should fix our thoughts. And what I love about this is uh, you can do it. Fixing your thoughts, is, he's saying in Philippians 4, 8, I think I skipped past it, but I can quote it. Think on these things. Think on the things that are honorable. Uh, think on the things that are true. Think on the things that are just. Think on the things that are pure and lovely, the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Think on these things, which, by the way, eliminates 95% of the Internet and 100% of the comment section. He says, think on these things. And do you? Do you, do you have a plan in, for your life? Do you have even a plan? I'm not saying you're succeeding wonderfully, but do you even have a plan to think on these things? Do you have a plan to how you nurture your mind from what you read and look at and the images? That you, do you have a plan to say, God, I want to think on these things because I'm telling you, it's the path to peace when you learn to fix your thoughts. Uh, is it easy? No. Have you ever potty trained a toddler or home broke a puppy? Ever done that? Um, they make a mess. And with the mess, you can say, it can stay here and stink, or I can clean it up. If you asked me on the street, if you saw me tomorrow and said, hey, Robert, can you ever, is, it, is it easy to potty train a toddler or housebreak a puppy? I'm going to say, my answer is no. I think it's hard. 
But the enemy's lying to some of you and thinking just because it's hard, it's impossible. And I'm telling you, you're leaving some things in your mind. They're not true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and excellent and worthy of praise. They're just the opposite, and it's messy, and you need to clean up. Don't let it stay there and stink. And just because, here's, here's the lie that so many of us, good church growing people, people on staff at churches, people in leadership positions, maybe you, we think just because it's hard, it's, it's not possible. It is possible. You can control not your circumstances. There's very little that you can control, but you can control your, you can control your thoughts. And I, I want to give you that. Fix your thoughts on him because, man, it matters. And by the way, toward the end, Lauren, y'all go ahead and come up because we're right there on the edge. Um, he says, Later, I didn't put it on the screen, but in verse 9, Philippians 4, 9, after all this, he says, the things you've seen in me and heard in me and the witnessed and learned from me, these things, put them into practice. And the God of peace, there's that promise again, the God of peace will be with you. And there's an old saying, I learned it from my grandma. She's been in heaven many years now. She used to say, doing is better than stewing. And uh, it's why I want to keep saying, practice what you hear. Practice what you hear. Go to your small group, show up, open the book read it and learn and then go apply it. Come on Sunday, write something down that matters to you. I had, a, had an older guy fuss at me after the first service because we, we got the things that we give you when you walk in, but we don't have room to take notes. He's like, give us some space to take notes. Take some notes and then go do something about it. Put it into practice. Put it into practice. Anybody that does something well at a high level, they'll tell you the difference between them and other people is who puts it into practice. Doing is better than stewing. And for some of you, you can be a much better thinker if you just start practicing some things that you're learning. That's what he's right said. Put this stuff into practice. Go do something about it. It matters. So I want you to stand with me this morning. Let me pray over you. Ask God to meet you today. Confess your overthinking. If it's at a point for you of despair, depression, can I just say as maybe your pastor, or maybe I'm just a preacher of voice, can I just say, I think this is the oracles of God over all of us. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to withdraw. You don't need to have to step away. God, I pray today for your voice to be louder than our thoughts. And you would help us to pray, to ask you for what we need, to thank you for all that you've done, to cling to the promise that peace is the greatest gift. And that we would learn to do our part in fixing our thoughts. That we would think about an integrated system and live in more integratively with uh, body and soul and spirit our emotions, our mental selves, and how they're tied to our physical selves. Give us naps and exercise and food and touch. And above all, God, we desire you. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, the altar is open. And I want to invite you to pray. I would, it'd be a big honor today. We won't capture you on camera for the internet. I'll have my microphone off. But I'd love to pray for anybody today. Uh, this first service was really special to pray over people the altar is open and we're here and uh, you come today if we can pray for you if you have a spiritual decision uh, we want to be here for you